You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Mental workers, welcome back to the Mental Work Podcast for Early Career Psychologists. Now, do you remember when you were a provisional psychologist? Perhaps you are one right now. I've got one with me here today as our guest, and they're going to talk about what happens when you have a life and you also are a provisional psychologist and the two collide. What happens? How do you get through it? And what are the challenges that you face during this unique period of being a provisional psychologist? The person I have with me here today, her name is Betty Farrell, and she's a provisional psychologist. Hi, Betty. Hi, how are you going, Bronwyn? Yeah, well, thank you. I'm so pleased to have you on because as I said to you off air, we haven't had a provisional psychologist on the podcast. And so I'm really excited to get this perspective of somebody who is in the thick of it. I feel like we sometimes get people who are like 30 years on the other side and we don't actually hear from people who are going through it right now. I agree. I think it's I think it's boots on the ground. I think it's in that moment and I think it's that transition from your personal life into your professional life that brings a lot of that early work challenge. So I'm pleased to be talking about it today. Yeah. And so, Betty, I want to start really in the thick of it. Um, when we were talking off air, you have had some pretty challenging experiences during your prof psych time. And I wondered if you could just take us back to the start. What, what happened? So this year has been phenomenal. So I kind of feel like I signed up for a new job and a new career, but also my life kind of fell apart as well. So Uh within the first six months of this year, I've um, moved 500 kilometres from my home. I've um, started to go through the process of going through a divorce. One of my children um, unfortunately had some mental health concerns and ended up in a mental health unit. Mm. Um, my, one of my children has had some fertility issues and then each day I get to go and work in a remand centre and the primary um, nature of our work is to work with suicidal people or men struggling with self-harm and they're incarcerated for some dread, dreadful crimes but still it's about seeing them as human people and treating them with dignity as well. So it's been a really challenging year. Oh, my goodness. So when I hear you say that, I just imagine somebody walking around with 10 boxes stacked up high and they're labelled for you moving five kilo- 500 kilometres, starting, yeah. starting your provisional sex. So you're doing the four plus two, is that right? Doing the four plus two. Wow. And so this is your first year? This is my first year. I've done 20 years as a special education teacher and a, and a behaviour teacher. Yes. So there's been quite a shift even in how we see our clients. Yeah. From an education background, we're all about taking care of all of their needs and doing all of the care for them. But as a psych, the work is more about supporting that client to problem solve concerns in their own life rather than taking those concerns off them and solving it for them. So it's been a real shift that way as well. So there's been so many transitions, not only from, I guess, coming from the special education background to the psych work, but also moving places and then I guess, going through your own family struggles that have been very challenging. Oh, my goodness, Betty. Uh, How have you gotten through this? It's kind of like that saying, um, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. It's it's been, look, it's been a real struggle. Um, and, And for the first couple of months, I really didn't know whether I'd made the right decision, whether I'd bitten off more than I could chew. 
whether I was um, a professional enough person to become a psychologist. You know, we all suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I kind of felt like, whoa, I'm really in the deep end playing with the big boys and really I shouldn't be here. So it was really important to take some time. Have I have a great supervisor who really stops and helps me work around, um, you know, just because you've finished your studies doesn't mean your learning is over and we've still got to continue to learn and adapt and grow each day and and to also look at those challenges on a daily basis instead of trying to, you know, eat the elephant in one bite. What can I do today? What did I do well? What can I improve? And that's been really helpful in sorting out some of those issues. It's been a common theme throughout the podcast, actually. We know that it's kind of like if you've got support, you can almost deal with any how Mm. or any kind of situation. Can you tell us a bit about how your supervisor has been able to guide you through this? Well, you know, one of the things that um, really caught me off guard is moving into those close supportive therapeutic relationships and our practice, you know, it, we're empathetic people. We wouldn't be working with people if we didn't care about people. So that's a given when you're working in a therapeutic space. Um, unfortunately, sometimes we just want to do everything for people and make things better. And so my supervisor has really helped me work through setting up proper boundaries, you know, therapeutic space that is safe, not only for myself, but for the client as well. And we've done a lot of work around transparency and counter-transparency and how that kind of muddies the water and that instead of um, focusing on the client's feelings in that space with that issue, there's that problem of them transferring it to you. Yes. And also that counter-transference where I am projecting my own frustrations onto that client. And then you can understand no one is benefiting from that. It's a really murky area. So coming back to those boundaries, those roles and those responsibilities, I know it's really unsexy language, but it's really supportive of an early career psychologist to figure out what is my contribution in this moment, but also what is my responsibility. That sounds massively helpful. And you know, Betty, it just strikes me because I'm literally only just learning about those concepts that you just described. And I have two years post-registration. I'm just learning about this transference, counter-transference and managing this over-responsibility for my clients. Because when you said that, I was like, oh yes, I want to make everything better too. Of course we do. (laughs) Absolutely. And I feel like that's even more important in your setting when you're working with incarcerated clients, I guess, in high-risk situations, they are suicidal and they have other risks associated with them. It sounds like understanding that transference, counter-transference would be essential in that setting? Well, look, and I think that's I, I think that's where it's been a bit of a double-edged sword. I'm 53, so I'm late to the career of psychology, but the benefit is that I'm 53 yeah. and I've had a life experience as well. My, young, my eldest child is 30, my youngest is 21, but when we're working in a correctional environment, working with a lot of vulnerable young people who perhaps have not had a really nurturing or safe and secure attachment with parents. And that space for counter-transference of wanting to go in and rescue them is really dangerous ground. So it's really important to kind of like check myself in the morning, see where I am emotionally and make sure that I'm staying within those roles and responsibilities, not just for my safety, but for the safety of the client as well. You know, we deal with people who struggle to manage their emotions, who struggle to regulate themselves, who have low distress tolerance. 
So a lovely, nice lady who's going to come in and listen to your stories, it's really easy and tempting perhaps to give that baggage of problems to her to manage. Of course. But we know in the real world when these men are released, I'm not going home with them. I'm not making their doctor's appointments. I'm not making their bed. I'm not making sure there's food in the fridge. So it's about teaching them strategies to manage themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And you sound so clear about this. Like when I hear you talk, I'm thinking, wow, Betty has so much clarity around this. I do wonder whether if you reflect on your career prior to starting this provisional psych journey, do you feel like that self-awareness comes from a long journey, long long professional journey for yourself and this is kind of the next step for you? I think um, I think parenting four children, studying sense. and working full time <laughs> yeah. makes you clear up your act pretty quickly. And <laughs> hey, I know I can sit with you, Bronwyn, and it's yeah. a safe space and I can talk about my challenges. But on a day-to-day basis, I wouldn't want any provisional or early careers to think, mate, it's just that easy. You've just got to think about it and it's and it's sorted. It's been a real struggle. And I think for the first two or three weeks, if I hadn't cried at least one day during my day at work, you know, it was a very rare day. We meet some very vulnerable people, um, people with intellectual impairments, people with really sad um, child trauma stories. You know, we would be heartless people if we weren't affected by that. Um, We can empathise and hold a safe space with them, but it's about being mindful of not taking that on and taking it away with us. And that's not easy, but it's something you've got to work at daily, isn't it? Absolutely. And I really appreciate you not sugarcoating it because it is really hard and we are human and we're also very empathetic people. So to pretend that we can just automatically put up that wall between us and very vulnerable people, we say, I feel like it's impossible. There's going to be some stuff that you're going to cry about when you get home that's really going to affect you. Oh, and it does. Uh, one of my one of my children has a neurodevelopmental disorder and has struggled with mental health concerns for the last six years. So I um I recognise the exhaustion in those that care for people with mental health conditions. Um, it doesn't make us. It doesn't make. It doesn't equip me any more to care for them, but it also doesn't make me impervious to their situations either. But um, I think the best thing. I, I remember when my son was um, admitted to a hospital and he was only sixteen, and I had started um, my psychology degree. And I was talking with him with the doctor and the doctor stopped me and he said to me, your job right now is to be his mum. Your job is not to be his mental health clinician. That's our job. So you just have to worry about feeding him and caring for him and loving him and the rest of the stuff is ours. And I think it's really important for us to figure out what is my role in this? Yeah. And also to be be really um, aware that, like any change, like whether you've ever tried to, you know, change a diet or change a habit, change is a long, tiring process. So what are those what are those guideposts that tell you you're on the right track? What are those guideposts that tell you that you're traveling along a track? But also what are those things that you say to yourself to keep you in the game? You know, if you haven't got skin on the field, you're really not in the game properly, are you? Exactly. But you can't burn yourself out either, can you? No, and I feel like you're pointing to something that's really common amongst 
provisional and, and lots of other psychologists as well is that we want to we want our clients to change we want them to get better and sometimes we don't recognize what our role is in that moment is to support them through this moment but mm. change can be a long process and we're like why aren't they changing like why aren't I helping them and we're forgetting that actually our role is a helping one in that moment and so trying to extend ourselves beyond that can lead to a lot of burnout I feel like this is really important stuff to to know as an early psych right and that's the thing. What is the stuff that burns us out? It's not. Um, it's not that we don't love our jobs. It's that it's that we overcommit to our jobs, or we overcommit to others. You know, you can't drink from an empty cup, right? Exactly. So, so when are we taking care of ourselves? We say to our clients, "Hey, I can see we've identified this is our issue. We've identified this is our technique that we're going to use to manage that issue. So we're going to practice that and revisit it." But then where are we having that conversation with ourselves? that, hey, you're overcommitting your hours, you're not having enough personal time, you know, anybody in those in those first two years of the internship knows tasks, observations, yes. case reports, like it doesn't stop, logbooks, daily reflections. How do we balance all of that without burning ourselves out? And it's easy to go hot and hard fast and then burn yourself out. And, and we don't want to lose any more talented, qualified, capable people from our field. Especially I completely agree. Not now. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's one of the aims with the podcast is that we keep on burning ourselves out when losing these wonderful people who could have stayed in this profession that they love. But we're actually, yeah, just burning ourselves out so much. I do wonder if this is your experience. You seem to have, I mean, just from speaking with you, I'm going to say you seem to have robust self-esteem. And I'm going to say that because I feel like a lot of early psychs, they do have these feelings of inadequacy, whether that's projected on them from supervisors or unhelpful colleagues or, or anything like that. And they could begin to feel inadequate. So they push themselves really hard. And I just wondered whether you had kind of felt this or, or whether this was something that's not on your radar. No, I think, um, I think having four adult children kind of knocks the edges off you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I love them, but they, yeah. are, they are cheeky people. So yeah. I think it's about trusting in yourself. I think, you know, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know what you stand for, if you mm. don't know your qualities and your failings, I think that's the thing, um, having gone through a divorce over the last six months, um, my husband and I were married nearly 25 years. We've wow. been friends for 30 years. So this is a long-term relationship, but it's um, like with any divorce, it's the pain of the potential, but it's about recognising, well, what are the things about myself that I don't like? What are the things about myself that I do like? And what can I change? Or what am I willing to change? And I, I really feel for young women um, who are going into the psychology field in that you need to be all things to all people and I think that that's unrealistic and I think you need to identify your own style and your own personality and identify how much of that you're willing to take to work. Some people are very effusive, very very open, very kind, very truthful and that's okay to bring it to work but how much of that can you give without starting to burn yourself out or suffering from that vicarious trauma of over-investing in clients. 
Absolutely. The vicarious trauma is a big thing. And I completely agree. Like as a, as a younger woman myself, um, in my thirties, not in my twenties anymore, but you know, still on that, on that younger cast. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) but definitely when I was doing my internship, it was, I, I literally remember having a client and I was like, I do not have the skills or capabilities to take on Mm. this client. I think if I continue to listen to them, I don't have the protective capacity to Mm. help myself from that vicarious trauma, very, very extensive trauma history. And I wanted to say that I don't think that they're appropriate for our service. However, the workplace, the way that they were communicating it was though it was a failing on my part and that I was being incompetent rather than actually having quite a mature capacity to be like, I don't think this is for me. They can get better help elsewhere. And I don't think this is a unique experience. Um, But it just goes to show that sometimes we can butt up against other systems, I guess, that foster this inadequacy. I think it's a very, I think it's a very brave thing of you, Bronwyn, to say that. I think, I think, especially when we're, um, you know, first in a new role in a new place, we're learning their policies and procedures and yeah. the culture of the workplace as well. And I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to say, "Hey, I don't think I'm the best person for this job." Mm. Um, I'd like to share a story um, from my workplace. So, of course, protecting the anonymity of our clients. Yeah. Mm. So, I work with. Um, a young man, he's a he's a prisoner under the DIPSO Act, which is the Dangerous Prisoners Sexual Assault Act. Mm. Um, he has a personality disorder and um, has had a lot of childhood trauma. Um, because he has a borderline personality disorder, he has very chaotic relationships. He's very needy as well as rejecting you if you don't do it the way that he wants it to be. Um, he has attachment issues. So working with him in that space, um, there have been plenty of times where it had blown up in my face and I thought, mate, I think I'm really out of my depth here. And I was concerned about doing more damage to the client by being unskilled and unqualified enough to work with him. But I had a conversation with my supervisor who was who was really brilliant on saying, you know, that first do no harm, mm. do your very best and... And, and try to go forward, but the clarity about roles and responsibilities, about what is the purpose of me coming to talk to you today, about having belief in your own capability to manage just that tiny portion. We're not talking about curing them in the short term. We're talking about assisting them to manage themselves. Um, and, but one of the things that my um, supervisor spoke to me about with this challenging client was about being aware of that transference and that counter-transference, him projecting his needs onto me, but also me having troubles with my own unresolved conflict and reflecting that upon him. And then going to my supervisor at the workplace and having a frank conversation. And sometimes that's the best thing to go and say to somebody, hey, I don't know that I'm capable for this. This is my plan. This is what I'm willing to do. What kind of support can you give me? And the supervisor that I've got that I work with was saying there's a difference between being assertive, being um, aggressive, and also being passive. And so we really want to be working in that assertive space where we are recognising our skills, but also acknowledging our shortcomings and then looking for support, not quitting or giving up, but saying, is somebody better placed to suit this person? If I continue, what kind of support do I need or what additional training do I need? So I've um, gone off and done a lot more training in um, personality disorders and we are still working together today 
And it's been a really important relationship and it's stretched me. And I've gone home humiliated and I've had him raise his voice at me and be quite threatening. But it's about coming back and putting that role and responsibility back into place, but keeping yourself safe. So I wouldn't recommend it for anybody. Mm. But you you need to measure that. You need to be brave enough to go to your supervisor in the workplace and say, hey, I think I need some support or a conversation about this at least. What I'm hearing with that as well is really coming back to that importance of knowing what you are doing and why and Mm. what you can do and what you're willing to do and what you're capable of doing as well. Like it sounds like getting really clear on that in your head with the help of a supervisor as well seems to be really crucial because then in every interaction you're like here's what I'm here for here's what I'm doing here's what I can do does that sound about right yeah and here's what I won't do and here's what I won't accept Mm. you know look and that's the fortune of being a high school teacher for 20 years yeah you know it's a bit of a war zone out there sometimes (laughs) but being able to say to people in a way that they can hear it what you're doing now is not okay by me. Yeah. These are your options. You can take a break and we can come back later or you can just stop what you're doing and we can keep going. But it's about, I think the, I think the best thing is about finding those sentences, working them out with your supervisor so they roll off your tongue so that when you're in a hot spot, you're not thinking, oh, crikey, how do I shut this down? How do I stop this from getting, you know, we start to panic. And, you know, our frontal cortex turns off and we're living in limbic world and it's all emotion. So how do we go about managing that? And I always think the best way is to have a few sentences up your sleeve that this is the way I'm going to manage it. Because when your brain goes offline, you just need that automaticity yeah. to kind of have that come off, yeah. This is who I am and this is, this is the line. If you don't know the line, your client is not going to know the line. Mm. So you really need to know the line for yourself. Yeah. I think the other thing is I think... Um, one of the important things is is grounding yourself. You know, I have a, I have a process when I when I drive into work. I, I listen to music on in the car on the way. I take time to breathe and I take time to remind myself I'm just doing today. This is my workload for today, and I'm just doing today. I find that when we go into things and and we are a little dysregulated. If I've come into work and I'm upset about the divorce or selling my home or those sorts of things. It's easy to get um, caught up in the distractions or the manipulation of others, but when we are grounded and when we are settled, we come in with a calm sense of space and, and a calm sense of what we're doing, and it kind of encourages others to also settle themselves a bit so that they can do that work with you. So you really need to have what is your process, what is your way of managing yourself, how do you regulate yourself? Can you regulate yourself by yourself? Do you need to co-regulate? Have you got a safe person in the office that you can talk to? And that's not to say that I haven't come back um, after dealing with some of our clients and had a big cry. Yep. Or had or had a big stomp and a rant and said, mm-hmm. that man is so rude. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with a vent. But if you live in vent world, then there's something wrong. Absolutely. And just to echo that, it is so important. And I think it's so true as well, because I I also have similar experience when I've worked in hospital settings with patients who have, say, dependent personality disorders or other disorders, but they are very, very anxious. I always said to myself in those settings, like, 
I need to calm down here. I need to be okay. And then I'd give myself a moment. I'd do something else. I'd tell my colleague and then I'd go excuse myself and just make sure that I am okay. And absolutely, I would notice a difference. If I am calm, it's much easier to project that to patients and you get a much better interaction. Look, and it's a thing, um, I would hope all of our early career psychologists would know Victor Frankl's work, the yes. man's, uh, man's search for me. Yeah, yeah. And he has a saying that between stimulus and response, there is a space. Yes. And that's the space we're looking for is to capture that moment between that stimulus and before that response where we are taking a breath and figuring out what we're doing here. And that's the thing when we work with challenging people who maybe have mental health conditions that they don't understand or are untreated or or they've engaged in, in substance use and that's affected their cognitive reasoning or they've got personality disorders and they are entrenched in those roles, when we can look at it objectively and in a clinical perspective, it kind of frees us up to not personalise the way that they are engaging with us. And we can kind of see, hey, this is a person who's, you know, the function of this behaviour has been to meet their needs and it's been repeated over and over and over in a maladaptive way, but it's met their needs. So now we're going to come along and we're going to look for that space where we can respond to them compassionately, um, you know, honouring their human rights, but also not being swept up in that disorder that they're struggling with right now as well. Yeah, it's a very wise mind kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, like kind of walking that path between the emotion mind and I guess like Mm. the rational mind fully, it's this very wise mind path. And I think that is so helpful to know and to kind of work by because it also removes the stigma from clients. Like sometimes when we're challenged by clients and we are getting dysregulated, we can jump to all sorts of negative conclusions about their intentions. But when we actually see the function of the behavior and we see them as a human and a person first, it's much, I'd say, I would argue that it's much better for us as clinicians, but also more beneficial to them. Oh, look, I agree hundred percent. I worked with a man um, in the remand centre where I am, and I had gone down to do a risk assessment. He had a recent um, self-harm incident, and we were assessing him for his level of risk and what kind of support we could put into place. And he was really defensive and really closed down and really reserved and uh, clenching his teeth and grinding his teeth and had tight fists. And the more he presented this external behaviour to me, the more I closed down. And instead of presenting an inquiring mind and looking at his um, incident with curiosity and, and you know, where is our space to support you, I just was caught up with the grinding teeth and the clenched arms and I closed down and my questions went from open-ended questions to really, so, you know, is it intention? Is it your intention to take your life? Uh, do you have a plan? Really unhelpful stuff, especially around a really sensitive topic. But I found that when I left him and took a moment and um, half an hour later before I started to write my report, I thought, no, I need to stop. I'm going to get a cup of tea. And I went and talked to somebody about this man. His presentation reminded me of a challenging stepfather I'd had. Ah. And I had been caught up and triggered by that external presentation of behaviour, whether that was all I could focus on. And I wasn't really open to hearing what that man was saying. So I really needed to take some time to recognise what was occurring and ground myself. And I do a lot of I do, I do a lot of self-talk. Yeah. And 
As you can tell, Bronwyn, I love yeah. to talk. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that, Betty. <laughs> so I do a lot of self-talk. I say to myself, you're safe. You know, I recognise that, that this is really similar to my stepfather and, and I recognise that this is how he presented before he would become violent, but you are safe, you're an adult woman, you know, it, the moment has passed, it's over, you're okay. And once I was able to settle myself, I could write a report reflecting what that man's needs were as opposed to what my emotional response was. And it's not easy. It's a no. tough gig. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to tell any early career people that this is, mate, you just make a decision and that's it. It's yeah. not. It's tough day-to-day work. One thing that strikes me is, is during my training, I was I was really just trying to survive. I wasn't, mm. and I didn't know about transference or counter-transference, and I wasn't actually encouraged to pay attention to my feelings during interactions I had with clients. It was more about the strategies that I was using and how am I going to justify and defend this to our funders. So it was all about, I guess, this kind of administrative type things. And mm. it's only now that I'm paying attention to my feelings. But hearing you talk, it really sounds like it is worth it early on from the get-go to really know your own stuff and pay attention to your feelings. We've had we've had a real great surgence of um, therapists talking about, you know, getting in touch with what's going on for you before you can get, get in touch with others. Um, Dr. Edith Iger says you've got to feel it to heal it. Yep. You know, and we would say we would say to clients who've got um, drug and alcohol problems, you can push it down. But it is going to pop up somewhere else yeah. in your life. And yes. we are no different. If you're going to push it down, it's going to pop up somewhere else and it'll pop up at a time when you're not ready for it. So let's embrace it. I agree. Because I was going to say, I feel like sometimes we're just early on, it's just so hammered into us. It's almost like pretend that you are not a human. You are just a professional. Just try and be like professional as you can. And if you have any human qualities, you're a failure. You bad psychologist. Like this is kind of the internalized messaging that I received. And I feel like that's really unhelpful. What do you think? I agree with you 100%. <laughs> and that's that imposter syndrome. Because- yeah. You know, but but we are empathetic people. We would not be in this field if we did not give a damn. Mm. So we just need to really accept that about ourselves and figure out for ourselves how much how much of who I am do I want to take to work? Mm. You know, what is my work face compared to what is my family face compared to my friend face compared to my wife face? But also we do need to accept that this is who we are. And you're so right. Um, you know, I work in a remand centre and it's a government organisation, so we do have those um, policies and procedures that change all the time and put restraints on us about what we can and can't do and what does our therapeutic work look like. But I suppose it's about being true to yourself and finding what space will you work in. And I'm a big supporter of radical acceptance. I really am. You know, it's it's... It's very much like um, a Buddhist philosophy. It's about accepting what is not under your control and embracing what is occurring in a non-judgmental way. We, We need to really let go of that illusion of control. If we have a client who's not responding to us, we can't manage that. If if I feel like my day is going to be set on fire because my home is gone on the market, I just have to manage that in the space that I can. So radical acceptance is about um, it's about looking at these two different ideas can exist in the same space, 
the client can think I had uh, I had a client tell me you know nobody likes you here and you're not very good at your job <laughs> oh jeez <laughs> poor fella didn't realize I've been teaching high school for 20 years and I said to him, I'm quite okay with that you can tell your friends I don't take any nonsense share that story around nice but, you know, those two ideas can exist in the same space. He can think that I'm pretty crap and bad yeah. at my job and I can still think my job is not to come and make you like me. Yes. My job is to help you reflect on some of the behaviours that have brought you here. Mm. So that's it's challenging, but, you know, it's something that we've we've got to learn to do, I think. Yeah, like, you know, Betty, how do you have the time to be this uh, self-aware? That's what I want to ask. I'm just like, oh, my God, with the four plus two, you've got, like, you know, so much to do, so much to do. And I don't well, know. I think if you set fire to your life and there's nothing left but ashes, uh-huh. you just get on with it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, cool. Look, at, look, and I acknowledge that I'm much more fortunate than than younger women or mm. or young or, or men, I should be fair, who've got families and, you know, who are just raising small children as well as balancing a home, as well as balancing work, as well as balancing supervision, that's really tough. But, you know, I find I find if I'm not taking my time to take a breath and to manage what I can manage and to let go of what I can't manage, then I go under. And and that's not really a good that's not really a good space to be in. Yes. And it's not help to anybody. It sounds like you really value your own health and wellbeing as well. Definitely, definitely. Mm. Like, you know, and that's the thing with vicarious trauma and, and, and secondary stress that we, we receive from from exposing ourselves to people with, with challenging lives as well. If we continue to work in that space and don't do self-care, and I'm not talking um, bubble baths and fluffy robes. I'm talking, <laughs> about, I'm talking about keeping that doctor's appointment. Yeah, I'm talking about going home at the end of your shift when you're supposed to. Yes. I'm talking about making sure you eat one decent meal a day. It's like your mother said, have a lot of water, have something to eat and go to sleep. You'll be fine. You know, if you don't do those things, we are so much more at risk of vicarious trauma. And it's a really serious thing where we, we're going to lose a lot of people from our field. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. It's, it's almost that like people... It, these are very serious things. Like mm-hmm. I, I can hear that you think it's quite serious with the vicarious trauma and like burnout is a serious condition as well, but sometimes it's talked about quite flippantly, um, but it's actually mm-hmm. very serious and it can really get people out of the field, which is something that they've wanted to get in. And I think that's the biggest thing for me. Self-care is not about the bubble bath once yeah. a month or or binge drinking with the girlfriends on on the weekend once a month. It's seriously going to bed and taking care of yourself and but putting time aside for your family and putting time aside for yourself and you know making sure that you're nourishing yourself as well reading stuff that keeps you engaged in the profession uh, reading stuff that that inspires you like anything from Bruce Perry you know his work about um the boy who was raised as a dog yeah I read that but, one hey how good is that so good so good but so easy to read so easy yeah. to dip in and out of you know, like who are the people that inspire you? You know, um, where is that knowledge that you're gathering? You know, some of the training that we do, especially your your assessment tasks, they can be really quite dry if you're not if you're not a psychometric assessment kind of person. So where is the stuff that we're engaging with that's increasing our knowledge and understanding of ourselves, but also increasing our ability? You know, it's like a muscle. The more you know, the better you do. 
it just really strikes me. So you've had a career before this in special education teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you mentioned you had another career before that. Um, I'm wondering what prompted you to get into, uh, it just seems like such a difference um, to come into a romance centre and move 500 kilometres away. I, I'm just wondering what led you to this to this career change. You know, working in a romance centre is my dream job. Really? Wow. Really, really. That's so cool. <laughs> Years and years ago, I worked in a uh, low socioeconomic area. I taught high school. I taught senior high school, senior English, taught boys to read to kill a mockingbird who didn't want to read. So, <laughs> so I'm for punishment. Yes. Um, I found that when I worked with children from um, low socioeconomic areas, that it seemed it was not it was never just the child that presented with barriers mm. or presented with challenging behaviours. The, the closer you looked and the more you pulled on the threads, you could see that there was, you know, generational poverty or or liter- literacy issues within the family or drug and alcohol. And so I, that's why I spent years working in behaviour. You know, if I can peel back the next layer and support the family, then that will make a difference to the child. But the more I did that, I saw that mental health, how we think about ourselves, what our identity is, what we believe our capacity and capability is really impacts on the future that we see for ourselves. So the more I worked with families and tried to see where where was my bit that I could change, I realised it wasn't one bit. It's always coming back to who am I? How do I see myself? Am I loved? Have I got something to look forward to? And how do I manage when my needs aren't met? You know, it's that circle of security stuff, a safe place to explore the world and a safe haven to return to when I'm challenged. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't have that. So no. we see people who get dysregulated, who get upset, and they don't know how to manage things or resolve problems or communicate. And then we find that a lot of them end up in remand centres. So in a way, becoming a psychologist, is it, it sounds like a perfect way for you to address what you see as the core difficulties that people are having, like when it comes down to it. Is that right? Yeah. And I, and I mean, you know, and I look at I look at my family, you know, so my husband's an oncologist nurse. Uh, we've been married 24 years, been friends for 30. We've got four children. Three of our children are fabulously successful, beautiful people. And one of our children has a mental health condition. And it's not for a lack of love or a lack of caring or a lack of schooling. Sometimes these things just just occur organically and it's about, well, what does the support look like for that person? So it's not about putting them into a box and saying, oh, they're that way because of. It's about, well, but also how do we take care of all of the people in this family? Yeah. Um, my youngest daughter's told me the other day that I was a bad mother when she was growing up. Because we were so um, busy, focused on our son's mental health concerns and his neurodevelopmental disorder before the mental health became an issue, that we were not really present parents for her. That's a really tough thing to hear about yourself. Yeah, it is. But what of this can I manage? What of this can I repair? And the best thing about life is there's always a tomorrow. We can always get up and go again. Yeah. And, you know, the more we learn about ourselves and our relationships and how to communicate and how to manage ourselves, the better our life becomes, mm. I hope. 
I hope too. And I think that's the something that we try to demonstrate to our clients as well. And I feel like it really does change the trajectories that they are on when they can really be aware of themselves and aware of their relationships and come to that. So I agree. Well, and I know my supervisor says to me, you know, mental health is like physical health. You can, you can get better. Yes. You know, but you need to have a plan and you need to have some support. So I think the same for the, as as we would give to our clients, we need to give to ourselves as well. You know, mm-hmm. our mental health is important. We need to have a plan on how to take care of it. And you could be having a crap day today and feel like an absolute failure, but it will get better. It's mm. you know, and and everybody goes through it. Everybody feels overwhelmed. Everybody cries. You know, everybody thinks that they're inadequately trained, but. That's why we're early career, isn't it? We've got opportunity to learn and improve. Well, exactly. We're not supposed to be perfect. We're early career. Like we're still learning. Like we are literally in a learning phase. And I don't, I don't, I don't really know anybody that I'd say is perfect. Hey? Oh, me too. Yes. <laughs> it's perfection is our is our goal. It's a pretty crap goal. I'd yeah. rather be, you know, caring and compassionate and thoughtful and interesting rather than perfect. Yeah, I think if I was a perfect psych, I'd probably stop being a psych. I'd be like, oh well, that's done. Solved world mental health, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Betty, it's been a real breath of fresh air really to talk to you. I feel like your mindset and the way that you are coping with quite challenging circumstances will really set you up to continue to do well in the role that you're in. I did want to ask you whether, because I'm I'm betting that there is a provisional psych listening to this and they are maybe having a hard time with their internship. It's quite demanding doing the four plus two and it's quite demanding doing the five plus one as well. It's, it's just very demanding being a provisional psych. And I wondered if you wanted to say anything to them. Yeah. For the ones who are having a really tough time right now. Anyone who's having a tough time, I would say to figure out what your boundaries are. Mm. What does home life look like? What does work life look like? Have you got an imbalance? I'd also say, where is your space? Who are your safe people in your safe space that you can talk to frankly and openly and get not just sympathy but empathy and support? But I would also say feel it. Feel all of the challenges and feel that you can do better as well. You know, and again, I go back to pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. You've got to you've got to keep your focus on where you're going, what your balance is, what your plan is, and, and you'll get there. And I would say that, Anyone who thinks that I've got it together, I really do not. <laughs> and everybody has a challenge, but I could not do it without the, the people in my team who support me, a fabulous supervisor who I'm ugly, honestly, you know, embarrassingly truthful with, because I think that's the only way you can do it. If, if you are feeling like an imposter, that's okay. Everybody starts out feeling that way, but it will get better if you can manage it in bite-sized pieces. I completely agree. Thank you, Betty. That's, it's such, it's such good things to hear. It really uh, goes against sometimes the tide of expectations and pressure and I guess trying to monitor ourselves so tightly. It, mm-hmm. Sometimes it just feels so suffocating and I feel like hearing you say that it really, it really puts me at ease. I, I quite enjoy it. Um, and I hope it puts listeners at ease too and gives them some hope that, yeah, it's, it's one step at a time, one day at a time, one interaction at a time. Thank you. No worries. 
I just want to say my supervisor gave me a piece of advice when I was yeah. complaining about my workplace repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. you know, because, you know, in those first six months, it's really challenging. And you think, am I where I should be? Hey, I moved 500 kilometres. Am I where I should be? Is yeah. this a terrific mistake? And he just said to me, if this is not where you're meant to be, where is it that you want to be? And what are you doing about getting there? You know, maybe you're struggling because it's not a great fit but maybe you're struggling because it is a good fit and you just got to develop that skill. If you're not where you want to be, where do you want to be? You know, our internship, we're so desperate to get on and to find a supervisor and start the process. But this is our one truly wonderful life. Are you spending it the way you want to? Yeah, this is it. This is it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Betty. I really appreciate you sharing your story and your insights. I feel like this will be immensely helpful to our listeners. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, no worries. To everybody listening, if you have any feedback, please send me an email at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on the Facebook page. And I'd be really keen to hear what you've taken away from what Betty has said to us. And I hope that it has really helped you in some way as well. Catch you next time and take care, everybody. Hey, mates, just a quick shout out from me to you, thanking you for buying me a virtual coffee. These are the listeners who have bought me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash mental work, and I've been extremely grateful for it. These people are someone. Yes, someone brought me three virtual coffees. Amazing. Danny, Michael, and Christy Joe. That's my mum. Thanks, mum. You're amazing. I really appreciate the virtual coffees. And if you want to help keep the podcast alive and receive a shout out on the show, you can also buy me a virtual coffee. It's a one-off donation and all funds go directly back into keeping the show alive. It costs about 30 bucks a month just to put an episode out. So it is extremely appreciated. You can buy me a virtual coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash mental work. Thanks mates and catch you later.